You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Thank you for being with us in worship. Uh, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7, and I'm super excited for our topic this morning, Evidences of Genuine Faith. I grew up in western New York, uh, Buffalo, the Niagara River, and the famous Niagara Falls. And uh, I've been to the Niagara Falls dozens of times. It is a majestic place with an enormous amount of history. Uh, there's a remarkable story that comes from Niagara Falls uh, in the mid-1800s. I want to share that story with you as we reflect on genuine faith. The gentleman's name is Blondin. He's a Frenchman, and that's his nickname. And he uh, was quite a famous man in that era. He was a showman for sure, an acrobat, but he was famous for tightrope walking. Uh, he did a lot of exercises in uh, London. In fact, there's a street named after him. Once he was uh, walking across uh, a tightrope in London, uh, playing a violin, and then he did the unthinkable. He did a somersault on stilts. But he's most famous for his feats of danger, if you will, uh, in the famous Niagara Falls. So think of the Niagara Falls, if you've ever been there, from the American side to the Canadian side, it's 1,100 feet across and 160 to 170 feet high. The waters are tumultuous. There's mist everywhere. And Blondin did all kinds of cool things. One, which was somewhat comical, he's walking across the tightrope from one side to the other. He took a stove out there, cooked an omelet, ate it, Bon appetit. Another feat that he's very famous for is he blindfolded himself. He took a wheelbarrow and he went from one side to the other. The crowds were awestruck. He takes off his blindfold and he addresses the crowd. And he says, hey, do you believe that Blondin can, you know, transport uh, uh, from this side to the other side in this wheelbarrow? And they all cheered, yeah. And then he asked for someone to volunteer and get into the wheelbarrow. And the crowd went silent. They believed in their head, but not in their heart, weren't willing to commit. But probably one of the most famous things Blondin is known for, and it is captured on film, is when his manager, I want to show you the picture right now, when his manager hopped on his back, his name is Harry Colcord, and Blondin carried him from one side of the falls to the other. Now, I know quite a bit about Blondin just because of growing up near Niagara Falls and reading some of those books. They're, they're at the visitor center. And I'm very impressed with this guy. He was a showman, and he did some uh, phenomenal things. However, when I think about his manager, Harry Colcord, I am equally impressed. Why? Because Harry demonstrated genuine faith. Think about it, folks. Try to put yourself in Harry's shoes. Would you... Hop on the back of Blondin and walk, uh, let him carry you 1,100 feet over the Niagara Falls, 170 feet below with tumultuous waters. Think about what Harry did. He believed that Blondin could do it, but not only did he believe in his head, he believed in his heart, and he committed himself. 
He had faith. He literally risked his life. And his belief, his faith, was put into action. There was evidence by what he did. And so that's our topic this morning. We're going to talk about evidences of genuine faith. Last night at Life Group, we opened our Life Group talking about Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. And Paul's pleading with them to make sure they pass the test. And in some ways, this passage could help us test ourselves to see if we have genuine faith. Now, I hope you downloaded your digital guide, and we have a nice sermon outlined there. And I'd like to start with the blessing. And the blessing is this. Each one of us can know we have genuine faith by examining the evidences of that faith in our life. And so, again, this is part of testing genuine faith. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 7. There's a lot going on in Luke 7, four stories. We're going to tie them all together. But uh, I want to address initially Luke 7, 1 through 10. So let's begin with verse 1. Follow along, please. Luke writes, When Jesus had concluded all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion slave who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. Matthew records that he was paralyzed. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting Jesus to come and save the life of his slave or servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, and this is a remarkable statement, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. That is a beautiful passage and certainly uh, evidence of genuine faith. And I want to start, <clears throat> before we look into some of the key points this morning, by just reflecting a little bit on who this centurion is. Number one, we know he's not a Jew. He is a Gentile. He's a Greco-Roman soldier. Number two, he had a pretty high position in Israel. He's overseeing 100 soldiers. That's what a centurion is. But they also know that he is a caring, compassionate man. If you have a paralyzed slave, typically in the ancient world, you would just kind of discard them. And here he is, a man of compassion. He's got a heart. He wants a slave to be healed and, and to live. But we also know he's benevolent. 
He built a synagogue for the Jews. He cared about the God of Israel. So this guy is just a a neat man in in the culture of that day, trying to be a a contributor to society, both to his servant, to the community, and so forth. And yet, he's never, ever met Jesus. Word on the street has it, Jesus could help him. He reaches out and, and gets Jesus' support. And in that interaction, one of the most remarkable statements is made. And I want to draw you back to that statement. Luke chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus says, after all this interaction, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. Friends, that's remarkable. And so it begs the question, what is so great about this man's faith? What is so striking that Jesus said this Gentile centurion working for Rome, his faith trumps everyone else's faith in Israel? Well, that leads us to evidence number one. And so evidence number one is this, genuine faith is a humble faith. Genuine faith is a humble faith. The Bible makes it very clear that humility precedes genuine faith. Now, there is a deliberate contrast that Luke is developing in this narrative between the Roman Gentile centurion and the faith system, the worldview of the Jewish elders. Track with me. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. The elders say to Jesus, this is their worldview, he is worthy for you to grant this. Why? Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So again, notice their worldview. And it was so common in the ancient world, the culture of honor. And so basically they're saying, Jesus, he is worthy because, because he loves the nation of Israel because he has built us a synagogue. In other words, their worldview was honor for honor, blessing for blessing. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. This is a quid pro quo system. Now, friends, we must be careful because we can fall prey to that way of thinking which is not positive and suggesting and thinking that God favors us, blesses us because of our goodness, because of our benevolence. That view, of course, distorts the character of God. God blesses us because he loves us. He loves all of humanity. He shows his favor on all people. The sun shines, the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. He is a good, caring, loving, benevolent God. We need to remember that. Now, notice the centurion's worldview in contrast to the elder's worldview. Look at verse 7, if you will. And so the centurion sends his friends to tell Jesus, saying, Lord... Don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I find it interesting that the centurion uses the same word that the elders used, but he uses it in an opposite way to demonstrate his unworthiness. 
He is not relying on what he has done, but only what Jesus could do on behalf of him. And what a beautiful picture of genuine faith. And I would suggest to you, that's why Jesus commends him for faith. It's not by our works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, God saves us, extends his grace. Now, what's remarkable about Luke in this chapter, very intentionally, he closes this chapter of 50 verses with another story of genuine humility. And so Jamie already read the passage, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. If you have your Bibles, look to Luke 7, uh, uh, 46 through, no, 36 through 50. But basically what happens is we have a story about Simon a Pharisee who's throwing a party. He's got a banquet. Jesus is one of the invited, honored guests. And guess who crashes the party? A woman of the streets. Most suggest that she's a prostitute. And how does she crash the party? The Bible says she comes in weeping. She's broken over her sin. She's a hurting person. She humbly bows at the feet of Jesus and begins kissing his feet. Think about the implication. She brought along an expensive perfume. Some suggest it's a nard. A pound of nard would be worth a year's wages, 300 denarii. And what does she do? She humbly bows in worship and washes his feet. And then this woman does the unthinkable. It's unprecedented in the ancient world. She unravels her hair. She takes her hair, kissing the feet of Jesus, washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. And friends, it is remarkable in the sense of the brokenness and the humility that this woman This woman comes before Jesus, and I want you to notice how Jesus responds. Look, if you will, to Luke 7, 47 through 48. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, and then in verse 50, your faith has saved you, and notice this next phrase, go in peace. That is language of the kingdom of God coming in our midst. That is language of the Messiah bringing a new realm, God's presence to people. Think about the three key words. Forgiveness was granted her. Salvation came into her life. Now she had the privilege to go in peace. That's what it means when the Messiah comes and the kingdom uh, enters our midst. And so James chapter 4, verse 6 teaches, God resists the proud. And notice this, folks. Gives grace to the humble. The Roman centurion, this sinful woman, demonstrates that the precursor to genuine faith is a humility, is a brokenness over our sin, and an unworthiness uh, to receive that but then to experience God's mercy and grace. And so it begs the beautiful question as we examine our faith. Have you been broken over your sin? Have you humbly come before God's throne of grace and experienced his grace and mercy? Receive forgiveness, salvation, and peace. That can be yours today. Evidence number two, 
genuine faith is an objective faith. Look again, if you will, at Luke 7, verses 18 through 20. Then John's disciples told him, and this is John the Baptist now, about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? When the men reached out to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one, meaning are you the Messiah who is to come, or should we look? For someone else. Now, friends, try to put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes, shoes right now. Um, you are called by God to be the uh, forerunner of Jesus, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John faithfully fulfilled that ministry. And for about a year, he preached uh, Christ, he preached the coming kingdom, he prepared the way for Jesus. But then as he confronted a local king over his sin, he's thrown into prison and martyrdom is sure. He's sitting in prison. He has time to think. He's reflecting. And I think strategically, Luke uh, puts his faith on trial, if you will. He's struggling. Is Jesus truly the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Why is he struggling? Because he's going through a test. His faith is being tried. He's sitting in prison. Martyrdom, sure. And so what does he do? He reaches out to Jesus. In his honest doubt, he inquires. He goes back to the source of faith, Jesus Christ. He sends his disciples, and they ask pointed questions. And I love how Jesus responds. It's so wise what he does to answer John's question in a roundabout way. Let's look back to our text, Luke 7, 21 through 24. Let's see what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. He granted sight to many blind people. And Jesus replied to John's disciples, Go and report to John the things you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. And anyone who is not offended because of me is blessed. So Jesus gives the answer. And in a very practical way, Jesus and Luke says, the proof is in the pudding. John's disciples went back and reported to John the Baptist what they have heard and what they have seen. And that is the objective reality of the Christian faith that we embrace. And so what happens? John's sitting there in prison. He says, he is the Messiah. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cured. People are being raised from the grave. And the poor are not only hearing the gospel, the good news, they're embracing the gospel and their lives are being transformed from the inside out. Genuine faith is objective, but it is only as good as the object one places their faith in. Jesus is saying, John, hang in there. I know this test, this trial, these times are tough. I know you're wondering why you're sitting in prison and martyrdom's around the corner. But John, you did your job. You prepared the way for the Messiah. The kingdom is coming. Hang in there. Hold on to faith. 
believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this morning, I want to share with you uh, three objective realities that you can hang your hat on, that you can hold on to when times get tough, when your faith is being tried. And these are objective realities, again, developed by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Acts is certainly just a sequel of what he saw in Christ's life and then what he learned about the church. So three things this morning. Objective reality, number one, the historical reality. In other words, folks, this is history. The Bible is a history book, but so much more. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to flip to Acts chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, feel free to do that. But let me give you a paraphrase. The early church's birth, thousands are coming to genuine faith in Christ. Lives are being changed. Baptism's happening. Ministry. Peter and John are heading up in Jerusalem to the temple, and they encounter a man who was lame from birth. Lame from birth. And he's begging. He's asking for alms, which was very common in the ancient world. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, arise and walk. The man stands up. He's been lame from birth, and he starts walking. He starts dancing. He starts singing. This is a party, and people are in awe, and they're asking the question, how is this uh, happening? How can this be? And so Peter takes the opportunity to preach Christ and him crucified. I just want to show you a few verses from that sermon. So look at Acts 3, 15 through 16. Peter says this, You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, who you see and know how objective. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of you all. So where does Peter start? He starts with the death, burial, and resurrection, a historical reality that is monumental to the Christian faith. When you read the book of Acts, there's 28 chapters, roughly 25 years of church history. Every sermon that's preached in Acts, every one of them, has the death, burial, and resurrection as the foundation stone of the proclamation of the gospel. And then you add the rest of the New Testament. We have a minimum of 11 appearances of Jesus uh, resurrected from the grave to disciples, to individuals, to women, to a crowd of 500. And then the past 2,000 years, the church all across the globe has been celebrating Easter, commemorating the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. In 2017, a very important movie came out. I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen A Case for Faith, by Lee Strobel, his story, uh, his faith journey. Uh, I highly recommend it. Let me tell you Lee's story. Lee was an antagonist to the Christian faith. He was a devout atheist. But at a point in time in his marriage and his family life, his wife came to genuine faith in Christ. And that created tension, huge tension. The marriage was ready to fall apart, and Lee was frustrated. He despised what was going on in Christianity. He was a devout atheist, a critic, an opponent. But he was also a journalist, an investigative reporter, working for the Chicago Tribune. And he says, you know what? 
I'm going to go on a journey to disprove Christianity, and I'm going to start with their foundation stone, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Once I disprove that, my wife will figure it out, and I can help many other people. Well, guess what happened, friends? He went on an 18-month investigative journey to focus on one topic, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And the movie portrays it so beautifully. He comes to genuine faith in Christ. And for the past three-plus decades, he has just been a spokesman for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says this, and it is a key truth in Scripture, just summarizing this first objective point, the historical reality, the death, burial, and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. So if there's no resurrection, I mean, it's, our faith is worthless, but if there is a resurrection, our faith means everything. The second objective reality is the eyewitness reality. Look again, if you would, to verse 15. Luke says, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. Notice this phrase, we are witnesses of this. And so again, there's these eyewitness accounts. And going back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, remember Luke is a second-generation Christian, but he did his investigative reporting going out to the biblical world and interviewing the firsthand eyewitnesses. Therefore, he writes this. He says, many have undertaken to compile narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. And so Luke met with those eyewitnesses. He heard their stories. He wrote the accounts, and we have them in his gospel, one of four. Let me ask you a question. If you were to write a book or to produce a movie about one of the most uh, disastrous maritime events, the sinking of the Titanic, where would you go to get your information? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. You would go to the eyewitnesses, and there were 700-plus survivors. In 2006, the oldest survivor of the Titanic passed away. Let me show you a picture. And this gal contributed to the narratives, to the books, to the story. Lillian Gertrude Asplung, she was there. She experienced it, and her eyewitness testimony mattered. So here's Peter and John. They saw Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now they're proclaiming the gospel as eyewitnesses. In 1 John chapter 1, I love how John the apostle opens his epistle. Look at the language he uses time and time again to persuade people that the eyewitness account is most essential. Follow along, 1 John uh, chapter 1, first few verses. What we have seen from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and what was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. So Peter and John are eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, to his life, his teaching, his ministry, his healings. 
and what they saw, what they observed, what they touched, they had to declare to others. And we have record of that today. And so we have an objective reality, the historical account, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the eyewitness account. It came from firsthand sources. And then finally, objective reality number three, the transformational reality. I love this. In Luke chapter 7, we have this beautiful picture of uh, a centurion slave being healed, someone who was paralyzed. And then later in Luke 7, Jesus goes to a village south of Capernaum, six miles from where he grew up, town of Nain, and he heals a widow's son. He's raised from the grave. And then here in the end of Luke 7, what do we have? We have a woman of the street, a prostitute who's broken over her sin, and he's offering forgiveness. Friends, the narrative of Scripture and church history is this, is that Jesus changes lives. That's the narrative of Luke. And so you jump to another gospel, John chapter 3. We have a man named Nicodemus, steeped in religion, rigorous religion, coming to genuine faith in Christ and moves into a love relationship. In John chapter 4, you have a call girl, meets Jesus at a well, She embraces him as Messiah, goes back to Samaria, tells her people they come to genuine faith in Christ. Lives are being changed. One of the most striking changes comes in Acts 9. Luke records that Saul of Tarsus, a hater of Christ, a persecutor of the church, what happens? He has an encounter with Christ. His life is changed, and he becomes the greatest spokesman in the first century for the Christian gospel. He's changing lives. He's changed my life 42 years ago. This morning, especially for our children who are viewing, I want to share with you a story that's just very inspirational in my life, but also encourage the children for genuine faith. Jesus said, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So here's a picture of my daughter, Erin. I had the privilege to baptize Erin when she was eight or nine years old. And I'll never forget... It's just a young girl, her writing out her testimony, and as petite as she is, sharing her story with our church. Erin was with us this past week. She's 26 years old. She's married. She's 23 weeks pregnant. And her faith journey began when she was a child, and it continues today. And so, children, can I appeal to you? Jesus said, let the children come to me. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, paying the penalty for your sin. These objective realities are true, but Jesus will transform your life. My daughter's had some struggles over the years, but Jesus has always been present to walk her through those troubles, and we're so thankful. And so forgiveness can be yours. Salvation and the peace of Christ. And so to our children watching this morning, I want to encourage you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, talk to your mom and dad about this. Have a real conversation about what it means to trust, to believe, to have genuine faith in Jesus. And now finally, evidence number three, and it's beautiful how this closes, a saving faith. I want to recap how uh, Luke closes out Uh, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Remember, Simon the Pharisee uh, is throwing a banquet. 
And he doesn't really honor Jesus. He just invites Jesus as a guest because Jesus was kind of a, a big name in that community, so it probably looked good for Simon. But who crashes the party? We've already talked about it. The woman of the street. And she's broken. She's weeping. She's kissing his feet. She's pouring expensive perfume and takes her hair and wipes and worships Jesus. And the remarkable thing about what Luke is doing here is he shows evidence of genuine faith. He closes out with this woman's story. And again, I want to take you back to the core verses at the end of chapter 7 where Jesus says to this woman in their beautiful words, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, that is beautiful. She was broken over her sin. There was humility. Jesus forgives her sin, offers her salvation, and peace that surpasses all understanding. And so in Luke 7, he is very strategic about giving us evidences of genuine faith. And so can I do just a simple recap? Notice the progression. A centurion who's a Gentile outside of the faith of Judaism never met Jesus, has exceptional faith, faith that Jesus says was amazing, and it was rooted in humility and in confidence in who Jesus was. And then John struggling, as sometimes we all do with our faith, right? The trials and tests of our life push our faith to see if they're real. And what does Jesus do? He brings them back to the basics. Isaiah 61, the Messiah is here, the kingdom is coming. The blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are healed. People are even being raised from the grave. And the poor, the broken, the outcasts are hearing the good news and their lives are being transformed. And then the capstone of this chapter, and it's such a beautiful capstone, a woman of the street, her life is falling apart. She's broken inside. She comes weeping. She comes worshiping. Christ offers forgiveness. He offers salvation. He offers peace. She goes in peace. And so we started out this morning, test your faith. See if it's genuine. And so there's three tests this morning. Can you remember a time where you were broken over your sin? And when you cried out to the Lord in your brokenness, in a humble way, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where it begins. Today, do you believe in the, the objective realities that Jesus Christ, yes, he lived, he taught, he performed many wonderful deeds and miracles, but ultimately he came to die, to pay the penalty for our sin. It's called atonement. And so it's death, burial, and resurrection. He lives today. He's seated at the right hand of the Father that you can put your faith and trust in him. Have you done that? Do you believe that? that Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, the truth, the only truth, the life, the only life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Do you believe that? That's objective teaching and truth from God's word. And then finally, do you know today that you absolutely have saving faith? Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Salvation has come to your house. Go in peace. The Bible is very clear, folks. We can know for certain. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't hopeful, just maybe. This is absolute. Believe in Jesus. You can know your sins are forgiven, and you can have eternal life. Over 40 years ago, I cried out to the Lord. 
I confess my sin. Lord, I desperately need you. I turn from my sin. I turn to the Savior. He came into my life, and he transformed me from the inside out. If you've never made that decision, I encourage you, call upon the name of the Lord. Be saved today. My wife heard a message like this many years ago, too. She went home. She knelt at her bed. She cried out to God. God forgave her, saved her, gave her the gift of the Holy Spirit. Her life's been transformed. You can make that decision, too, today. I encourage you to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for genuine faith. And it's a gift from you. We know that. But we thank you, Father, that uh, it has to be birthed in humility and brokenness. Oh, such great pictures today. Thank you for the objective realities that Jesus Christ lived, he taught, he ministered, but he died, he rose from the grave. Thank you for the reality of transformed lives. Thank you, Father, for our risen Savior. And we pray today, Father, children, teens, adults, those who don't know you, Father, would come to know you. I pray for the children this morning that they would have conversations with their parents about the most essential thing in life, who is Jesus, and how they can put their faith in him. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would work, do a work that only you can do. Take your word, Father, apply it to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.